0: America's Independence Day, our 4th of July, is
1: here. But in Adams' own lifetime, he went to his grave insisting that, no, July 2nd was the day of independence, not July 4th. (laughs) July 4th was the day where the actual draft, where the actual version that was printed of the Declaration of Independence was prepared. And so that is why at the top of that draft, it says July 4th. And not july 2. the Mm -hmm. olive branch petition was actually declared this is another fun date on july 5th
0: july 5th oh what a coincidence 1775
1: and it was july 8th 1776 that the printed version was read aloud for the first time just to throw in another wrinkle of american history i found out that thomas mckeon from new hampshire didn't actually sign the document he voted on all the way until 1781 July 4 becomes politicized between Federalists, which is the party of Washington and Adams, and these new Republicans, or Democratic Republicans, we call them, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. We really don't see July 4 celebrations picking up in earnest across the new nation until after 1812 and that war.
0: Did you know that it took about a century for our Independence Day to be recognized as a federal holiday? and that it took 162 years from the time we declared our independence from Britain for our independence day to become a paid federal holiday. Hey there news peelers. Today is June 30, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at The History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both, and let's get into it. Strictly speaking, the 4th of July is not in the news. I mean, it's here and we're getting ready for it, but it's not a major development in our news. So why are we peeling the history behind the 4th of July? The reason is that it's distinctively an American holiday and its celebration has much to do with our identity as Americans, a subject that is becoming more and more important in the highly polarized atmosphere of not just our politics, but also our culture. Here are some questions that are important to answer. For example, has the meaning of the fourth of july changed since 1776 did it mean different things to different americans does it still have a different meaning for different americans and when did the celebration of the fourth of july start anyway to get some answers for these questions i spoke with dr thomas Balzowski, a professor of history at eastern connecticut state university For the academic year of 2022-2023, Dr. Balzerski was the Ray Allen Billington Visiting Professor in U.S. History at Occidental College and a long-term fellow at the Huntington Library, where I had the pleasure of attending one of his lectures. Dr. Balzerski has taught courses on early American history, U.S. presidents and first ladies, and the history of the Democratic Party from Thomas Jefferson to Joe Biden. To learn more about Dr. Balczarski, you can visit his academic homepages at Oxy and Eastern Connecticut, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. By the way, this conversation was recorded for the 2021 4th of July, but as you will note, its stories and analysis of 4th of July history remain very much engaging and highly relevant today. So, stay with me as Dr. Balczarski and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Balzerski, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show again. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So America is about to celebrate the 4th of July. <laughs> My family and I are having uh, the extended family over in our backyard uh, for barbecue. So. But there's a little bit of a curious history here. John Adams, who was very involved in pushing for independence and was, in fact, on the committee for drafting the Declaration of Independence along with uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, wrote to his wife, Abigail Adams, that the 2nd of July, 1776, will be the most memorable in the history of America and will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illumination, and so forth and on. (laughs) Professor Babersky, why is John Adams talking about the 2nd of July instead of the 4th of July? What is that all about?
1: Uh, Oh, glad to be back, Adele, and uh, nothing like cranky old John Adams. (laughs) Pleasure
0: to have you back. And yeah, John Adams, you're right.
1: Uh, I remember my high school textbook, Thomas Bailey's The American Pageant, which I think is actually still taught. It's... uh, now co-authored by David Kennedy, Mm -hmm. uh, emeritus at Stanford, described John Adams as Frosty. And I sometimes hold on to that characterization of this. Frosty. uh, Descendant of a Puritan who we might call today a stickler for the rules and for etiquette and certainly for the accuracy of history. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that what John Adams was talking about was the very moment of the vote of the vote in the continental congress what vote which well in which independence was declared so he's talking about the day that the members of the continental congress first approved this declaration of independence july 2nd
0: it wasn't on july 4th
1: no it wasn't and so that what's what's interesting here is that you know we're now multiple Centuries removed away from this event, but in Adams's own lifetime, he went to his grave insisting that no, July second was the day of Independence, not July fourth.
0: But he died on July fourth on the same day as as Thomas Jefferson.
1: Oh, we'll we'll get to that. And in <laughs> we'll fact, if that. anything, if anything, that's the irony of the whole thing: is that John Adams's very life and death, in essence, undid his own frostiness. And it forced him essentially by fact of history to accept that indeed July 4th would be the day uh, that all Americans would celebrate. And in fact, yes, John Adams was in a very small minority who believed that July 2nd should be the holiday. And he really was wrong, I think, because after all, July 4th was the day where the actual draft or the actual version that was printed of the Declaration of Independence was prepared. And so that is why at the top of that draft, it says July 4, and not July 2. So you have a, a printed document that has a date on it, that actually corresponds to the moment of printing, like we would say a newspaper today, it says the date of the newspaper, the event the newspaper was reporting on would be, of course, before that day. In essence, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a vote that took place before the printing. And that's the difference between July 2 and July 4.
0: You know, when we talk about printing of this declaration, the date on it is July 4th. Actually, that, that makes a lot of sense for having the holiday on July 4th, because that's when, if I'm correct on this, Professor Balzerski, that's when the community learned about this. So July 2nd was rather a small event with, with our founders, with America's elites. But July 4th is the day that this news was promulgated. Am I correct on that?
1: Well, you're close, actually. Okay. Um, but you, you're right to say that it wasn't July 2nd, but it wasn't July 4th either. We <laughs> you go back, right? Remember, we maybe let's do our hierarchy of elites. Uh-huh. Those elected to the Continental Congress, the very pinnacle. The printers who have access to the real documents, you might say, the press, they're right below it. But the rest of us are in the dark actually until July 8th. And it wasn't July 8th. July 8th. 1776 that the printed version was read aloud for the first time.
0: Whoa. So the date on the printed version is July 4th and the public learns about this on July 8th.
1: Right, because back to my, now I realize, flawed analogy about the newspaper, it doesn't show up in a newspaper right away. In fact, it will take, in some cases, weeks and months uh, for the full text to circulate in print in the various newspapers across the colony because, colonies because of, and the new states because of the, pace of, uh, the slow pace of travel at, at that time in the 1770s.
0: Interesting. Um, when we talk about elites and you know America's elite uh, eventually signed this document, as I understand it, they didn't sign it on July 4th either, right? That took a while.
1: Uh, That's another great point because then now we're into August, by the way, it's it's probably
0: August, 1776,
1: right? August the second is when it began with those signatures. And because it's the Continental Congress that had voted, if those members were no longer in Philadelphia by August, they don't actually then have the ability to sign it. And so just to throw in another wrinkle of American history, I found out that Thomas McKeon from New Hampshire didn't actually sign the document he voted on all the way until 1781.
0: Oh my goodness, five years later.
1: So when they talk about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, you might put an asterisk saying, when?
0: When. (laughs) Now, again, going back to this point that we made about the elites signing or the elites convening uh, for the Declaration of Independence, when we talk about it in high school, we visualize this great unity, this union of Americans coming together for the Declaration of Independence. Was it so?
1: It's a it's a nice idea. The Continental Congress itself is at this time, really the manifestation of this new nation that's being formed. But the Continental Congress, much like our United States Congress, was by no means united. Uh, so... I always like to say to my students, the United States is the goal. It may also be the name, but it's the goal that one wants to achieve. I love
0: that the United States was the goal, was the aim to get to. So, right. w- was there conflict to get to that aim?
1: Well, I mean, we can we can discuss it, but let's just look at, for example, those uh, fifty, what is it, fifty-six signers of the Declaration of Independence. They come from the several colonies than states, and they are represented at the time based on population. So Virginia had the, and and Pennsylvania, followed uh, by New Jersey actually, had the one, two, and three uh, highest numbers of of signers. Uh, And I think Virginia, I believe, had a total of, I want to say seven Uh, Whereas Rhode Island, the smallest state, had only two signers. So already we see within this composition of the Continental Congress that met to sign the 56 signatories that they were representative and proportionately so by population. So there was within already the composition of this first Congress a sense in which representation itself is somehow proportionate and not equal across the board. This is, of course, before the Great constitutional convention that leads us to a bicameral legislature. And so as a result, each state was represented variously by different number of men. And I say men, of course, advisedly because of the 56 signatories, they were all men. To what extent was it a diverse group of men? I think by our modern standards, we wouldn't call this a diverse group for the starters. It's only men and to use our own terminology. These are white men. That being said, across the socioeconomic scale, across the kinds of uh, origins and professions that these men pursued, there's where we saw a kind of diversity. It was mostly lawyers, but it included farmers, landholders, and um, generally we might say the politician class. So they came together as they had been the previous year as part of the Continental Congress to try to unite the colonies in a common effort. And at this point, that common effort was independence. But it should be noted, a year before, not only was this Continental Congress against independence, they were actually sending infamously what's known as the Olive Branch Petition at the end of 1775 that actually pursued peace with Great Britain and attempted to foreclose any future conflict. This, of course, already after the start of the the fighting that we now call the American Revolution in April
0: 1775. Wait a minute, I want to make sure I understand the chronology of this correctly. We have Lexington conquered somewhere in the summer of 1775. It follows. April. April. There you go. Spring of 1775. Then uh, sometime after that, we have the Battle of Bunker Hill. And then after that, the Continental Congress sends sort of an olive branch petition to Britain. And several months after that, they have a change of heart and we have a declaration. How do we go from the olive branch to the declaration?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The story of the Olive Branch petition is, again, the story of transatlantic travel. The Mm -hmm. Olive Branch petition was actually declared, and this is another fun date, on July 5th.
0: July fifth. Oh, what a coincidence! Seventeen seventy-five. Okay,
1: so one wonders if uh, July was the magic week for this stuff. Um, but in like fact, it. it's because because they were meeting and they, when travel was possible in the spring. Then all the delegates came to Philadelphia, and you know they kind of got going. They sent their committees to work. So by July, okay, let's get some business done. <laughs> and so July fifth, seventeen seventy-five. The business was, please, King George III third, you know, accept sort of this as an offer of peace. We, your loyal subjects, we, citizens of the British crown and empire, wish to remain loyal to you. That's July 1775. So that should give you a sense between July 1775 and July 1776, what a change. What a change.
0: Did this Olive Branch petition, did that reach King George III?
1: It did. It took, How did it respond? As, well, as expected, it took weeks and months first to arrive there. Once King George receives a petition, he rejects the petition because it was an illegal document that he believed was created by an illegal Congress. And in the process, he used this then to formally declare the colonies in rebellion, which made therefore even the meeting of that Congress a treasonous act. Now that then takes time to get back to the colonies to get their answer and to then understand for themselves uh, that really something had changed in the nature of this relationship between mother country and colonies, and that therefore this Congress, which had been flailing for a direction, would have to to find a new course.
0: In a way, it seems like George III helped give the colonists focus in where they were going by essentially saying, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and I would just clarify that the members of the Continental Congress, because I think this gets us into a point we wanted to talk about today, which is just how many colonists were loyal to the crown and remained loyal throughout the war. We call these, of course, the loyalists.
0: Was it a big percentage?
1: Historians work on this exact question to try to answer it, and um, I've seen different percentages, but I think you can measure it at sort of the start of the war versus the end of the war, and I think the percentage I'm going to give you is based on as the war concludes, sort of who's on the losing end, who leaves the colonies, who is forced to uh, essentially renounce uh, this uh, this land they've been in, and that is between ten and fifteen percent is the estimate. Ten to fifteen percent.
0: That's that's a big number.
1: It is. It's, of course, a much smaller number than at the start of the war. Yeah, and we don't have polling, or we don't really have a way to scientifically measure it. But again, historians estimate there is much higher, that at the start of this this fighting, uh, the majority of Americans, of course, were loyal to the crown in 1775.
0: If the majority of the Americans were loyal to the crown in 1775, how do we get to... The declaration of independence on july 2nd um did the 13 colonies come together quickly or was there a lot of um you know arm twisting here
1: yeah it's a good it's a good question because this is um also the subject of an excellent book by david mccullough called 1776 where he breaks down uh the events of that important year start starting in january 1776 and takes us month by month and 1776 begins with, you might say, um, an explosion of not a bomb physically, but of a kind of literary bomb. And that is Thomas Paine's Common Sense.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yes. And of course, it was first published in January of 1776, right as this new year that we now know to be so important uh, came into into light. And it was a 47 page pamphlet that advocated independence of Great Britain, using language that was clear and persuasive, making arguments that were both moral and political, and at the end, calling for the common people to sort of recognize ultimately that their loyalty lay not with the crown, but with this new nation that was struggling to come into into being. So so in a sense, Paine was speaking to the masses, but of course he was also speaking directly to those delegates who the summer before had sent the Olive Branch petition. And indeed, it had a great impact. Those same delegates, a couple new ones, came back in spring of 1776 with an entirely different perspective uh, and we might say a more militant attitude towards the the subject of independence.
0: Thomas Paine was a British subject. Did he live in uh, in America at the time that he wrote his uh, Common Sense pamphlet?
1: Yeah, he did. He was an English immigrant, like so many uh, yeah. the colonists, whether recent or generation or so removed, but he came specifically for economic opportunities like other colonists. He came to the Pennsylvania colony and he had uh, with him uh, not much. He had a sense, you might say, just the, the um, genius of his mind and a pen in his hand because he was poor, he was destitute, and he got his lucky break thanks to uh, one of our most famous of the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, who actually was also the one who published and printed this, this pamphlet of Thomas Paine's.
0: You mentioned beginning of the war and end of the war and how um, the percentage of Americans loyal to the crown changed, it, it decreased significantly. Mm-hmm. Were there common everyday ordinary Americans that were not helping the cause uh, I asked this question because I've heard stories about uh, farmers or other business people that were essentially just going for opportunities, uh, which, which side, whether Continental Army or the British Army, uh, makes sense at the time. Are there any stories that may surprise us Americans today?
1: I think it's an interesting question since already we're assuming a unified American people. And in the assumption of the question, there's also the sense that all Americans would benefit from the uh, onset of independence and if there's one group you might say within the colonies at this time that would not benefit from independence it would be the enslaved african-american population yeah and after all uh, as we'll get to later i'm sure slavery is only going to grow and deepen and worsen as a problem in american society after independence and it can be argued too that uh, the, the very power that is given to this new nation as a result of independence will enable it to explode its economic conquest of new lands, dislocating Native American peoples, and burning upon this institution. And that's the second group that I would say uh, did not stand united behind the colonial independence project. and that would be Native American populations who for the most part, for the most part supported, the adversaries of the United States in this war of the British. Uh, and indeed, some of the most painful episodes of the American Revolution itself have to, go, have to do with the Continental Army marching into native lands, destroying villages, and beginning a conquest of, of parts that were further west of, of the, 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 sea, the seaboard colonies, and really setting again a stage for um, sett- settler colonial dispossession. So it seems like we have two groups who would be, who, who both in, in principle and in fact did not benefit from the project of independence. But to your point, too, if we even want to look at your everyday English or Scotch Irish or German immigrant, who are probably the three largest ethnic groups to European ethnic groups to be in the colonies, there is a question about do they benefit, even so, with the privileges that will come with democracy later on, a generation later? And the answer has to do really with where are they? Because the American Revolution and the War for Independence begins in, well, Massachusetts. It starts in New England, which is heavily related, uh, relying upon commerce and trade with Europe. And it ends in um, the Chesapeake Bay at a place that's called Yorktown, mm-hmm. uh, after a campaign through the southern colonies, which w- was predominantly relying on an agriculture and plantation-style labor. So... In the moment, uh, it might be said that if you're a southerner in 1776, the war hadn't come home yet. And it really really is a question more of ideology than whether you thought this, this new nation uh, should be independent. Whereas if you're a New Englander in 1776 and you have suffered the British occupation of Boston or you're a New Yorker in 1776 and your home's being invaded, whether on Long Island or in Brooklyn or in Manhattan,
0: later being the, occupied. War is, the war is there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great transition, uh, Professor Balziski. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about what came next? The 4th of July, it's, it's celebration, it's recognition during America's antebellum years. Earlier this year in season three, episode one, I had a fascinating conversation with Professor Joel Richard Paul of UC Law San Francisco, formerly UC Hastings Law about the history of the Republican and Democratic parties. He told me something about the 4th of July that I just can't shake off. He said the reason we celebrate the 4th of July is because Thomas Jefferson made it a national holiday in a self-serving way to elevate the Declaration of Independence. He added that it was Chief Justice Marshall, President Jefferson's chief detractor and also first cousin, who elevated the Constitution over the Declaration of Independence but the Fourth of July celebration continued and grew in prominence in our culture. Professor Paul's perspective is certainly one that I hadn't heard before. Regardless, I encourage you to listen to my conversation with him, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Balzerski. Professor Balazurski, we talked about the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War uh, that continued on for some seven years after it. But in this conversation, as you alluded, Americans lived in America for generations, but were not legally considered. Americans were excluded from all of this. And I'm talking about African-Americans, Black America. What did they think of 4th of July, going on 1776, and we go all the way uh, through the 1800s.
1: Yeah, I'd like to talk about that question since it builds upon our conversation, the previous subject, but I want to first begin with the notion of celebrating the 4th of July itself, Mm -hmm. since it may be assumed by your listeners that from the moment of independence from the reading aloud of the Declaration to uh, our present day in 2021, that each year there would be some kind of recognition or celebration. And I wanted to first point out that the first record of a July 4 celebration isn't until 1778, and it's only among the troops of the Continental Army when George Washington uh, ordered an artillery salute and, importantly, a double ration of rum. A <laughs> double Same ration
0: of rum. There you go. That's very American. You mean two years after the Declaration of Independence, that's when the first celebration came?
1: And then from there, it isn't widely celebrated for political reasons because it, it, the, the July 4 becomes politicized between Federalists, which is the party of Washington and Adams, and these new Republicans or Democratic Republicans, we call them, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And we really don't see July 4 celebrations picking up in earnest across the new nation until after 1812 and that war. And in the burst of patriotism, uh, brought by this war, we then begin to see July 4 celebrations commonly celebrated in a way as a kind of patriotic display uh, after that war. And it then would be kind of a tradition. And, and very often during July 4 celebrations, politicians would give speeches. And it was an occasion for uh, politicians who were on the rise to give their first public address. It was almost like an open mic, the July 4th celebration
0: they come out and introduce themselves and use that platform
1: and so but but again we're talking about we're talking about a little bit about elites and who benefits this is very much the the domain of men and white men and of men who could vote and had the ability to be a part of a public sphere and a public discourse and that kind of is why i think it's so important to first distinguish what was available to the average american by say 1852 and what wasn't available than the average African American by that same year. And it is on July 5th, 1852, during this antebellum period before the Civil War, that we get what I think is of as the great kind of rejoinder or the great counterpoint to the July 4th celebrations that had been happening now for a full generation from none other than Frederick Douglass.
0: Does he on July, you said July 5th?
1: July 5th. Ironically, Does- did not do it on the 4th, which I find
0: interesting. <laughs> Does he give a famous speech? Does he publish a pamphlet? He,
1: he was an orator. Douglas had course, an incredibly, yeah. uh, apparently, incredibly rich and deep baritone voice. So he could be heard, and he, his presence was, was notable. He was also one of the most photographed men of the 19th century, perhaps the most. And so when he stood up and gave what to the slave is the 4th of July on July 5th, 1852. He spoke it and he spoke it. And um, uh, if I
0: may interrupt you for a moment, he's given this speech somewhere, I assume in the North, this is before the civil war.
1: Well, that's exactly right. Cause this gets us into back to that sectional aspect of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, the North is at this time unifying around principles of anti-slavery. We're not quite yet at the birth of the new Republican i.e. the Abraham Lincoln Republican party but well, we're almost there, and Douglas and the abolitionists, of, of, of whom he was a member, were on the leading edge of it, and believe it or not, the leading city or place where the abolitionists gathered and congregated and lived was Rochester, New York.
0: Wow, Rochester, New York. Not 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 New York, New York, Rochester, New York. Wow, far away, up north. So with his great baritone voice, what did he say?
1: Well, he gave a um, a talk that, as he often did, was rich in history and rich in biblical uh, reference, and essentially told a history from the point of view of African American people in this country. Now, Douglas was an escaped slave who, through this process of bravery and courage and manhood, came into his own, and by 1852 was uh, perhaps the, the leading black abolitionist voice. So, when he says in his speech, in his in his uh, conclusion the most famous of lines that uh, this fourth of July is yours not mine you may rejoice I must mourn When he says that famous line you may rejoice I must mourn he turns the table on decades of celebrations of this patriotic holiday by putting a spotlight on the millions and millions of black people who were made in chains as slaves in this country.
0: Did those lines make it to the South back then? Doubtful, right?
1: No, it didn't. But it did make it to the audiences that Douglass wanted to reach, which is to say, Northerners. And particularly, Douglass wasn't necessarily speaking to fellow African Americans, although, of course, he was very much a leader in that community. But he was mostly speaking in a way to what we might call white liberals today, people who could be convinced, people who could see Uh, the injustices of slavery, and and make some kind of difference. He was really speaking in a way, you might say, to the next Abraham Lincoln, to a person who perhaps had anti-slavery sentiments, but had not really developed an anti-slavery politics. And it would still be several more years, of course, to Lincoln's election in 1860 that then brings upon our first anti-slavery president.
0: Does Frederick Douglass's famous speech in 1852 give us any perspective, uh, inform us at all about Juneteenth and what President Biden has done?
1: I think it's important to, again, tie Juneteenth to the history of this period. It is, of course, coming out of, of, again, a local moment, a moment of uh, when the Union Army liberated and and gave word to enslaved African-Americans in Texas, in Galveston, that freedom had come, that between, first of all, the Emancipation Proclamation, but really the 13th Amendment as well, which was going to abolish slavery constitutionally, that any person who was still being told by a white man or by an enslaver that they were a slave, that they were in fact free. And to use Lincoln's phrase from the Gettysburg Address, uh, that a new birth of freedom had taken place. And I mentioned Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address because I want to point out that Gettysburg is a battle that takes place, of course, during the Civil War and concludes uh, right around the same time on July the 3rd. So that by the time the smoke is cleared and and unfortunately the the heavy body count and toll uh, of the battle is taking place, it's July 4th. And once again, there's that symbolic resonance. So that by the time we get to Juneteenth, two years later, for African Americans, it really has become symbolically the... Kind of making good on that new birth of freedom that Lincoln promised in the Gettysburg Address, making good on the Emancipation Proclamation, making good ultimately on a new polity, a new constitution, and and everything that would come from it.
0: Do you think that from the Civil War on, African Americans thought of 4th of July differently?
1: Yeah, it's a good question about this, the importance of July 4th as a holiday, again, after the Civil War. Um, Holidays are really interesting history in their own right. And and, and one of the Civil War holidays that I want to throw in at this moment is today what we call Memorial Day, which is, uh, ironically, if you sort of look at summer every year, it's Memorial Day is the start of summer, uh, comes at the end of May, July 4th, Independence Day is often kind of the peak of summer in some ways. It's when it's truly underway and uh, we celebrate, of course, all the significance that, it, that, that the, the independence during the American Revolution brought. And by the end of the summer, we have Labor Day, mm-hmm. which is uh, when we know school starts again and we know uh, that the, the warm weather, at least in northern parts of the country, is coming to an end. And all three holidays actually have a very significant relationship to major questions of one, race, and two, labor and class, you might say, in this country. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. And it was called oh, wow, that Declaration because, Day. No, Decoration.
0: Decoration. decoration. Oh, okay.
1: Um, decoration decorating. Day. Okay. And, and it was called that because it was the day, again, it's spring, it's warmer weather, it's time to be outside, where uh, veterans, where widows, where uh, orphans, where all the people who who had lost uh, someone during the Civil War would go to the grave sites, would go and decorate, would, like we still do, put an American flag or put flowers or perhaps even clean the grave site if it had not been maintained during the year. Decoration Day is the precursor to Memorial Day. And to be very clear here, Decoration Day originates, we think, in the African American community in the South. We also think, therefore, that the South did not embrace this concept of Memorial Day. In fact, it merges into this Memorial Day holiday later. And for many years, Memorial Day is not celebrated as a holiday in the South, Uh, again, because of its relationship to it being, uh, coming from the Union victory in the Civil War. And on that same note, July 4th, in some places in the south, is also uh, not celebrated. And in fact, on July 4th, 1863, the day after uh, the fighting has ended in Gettysburg, that's also the day where the city of Vicksburg and on the, the Bend and Mississippi River surrenders. And, and There, were, there were two
0: big battles that really turned the tide right. and the morale of the Union Army.
1: And it's important to note that Grant uh, so one of my personal heroes, this is Grant's sort of uh, signature moment in the West where he will win the Battle of Vicksburg and essentially clear the Mississippi River for the Union Army going forward. But my point I want to make is that the city of Vicksburg, for more than 80 years after the July 4th surrender, refused to acknowledge July 4th at a holiday. And from what I've, I've read, it wasn't until 1943 that... Um, Vicksburg held its first July 4th celebration.
0: That is fascinating. Uh, Why don't we take a short break and we'll be back right after this. Hey there, newspeelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on US politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights and also series on many other countries like Russia, Ukraine, China and Brazil and the British monarchy. And also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel and France. The rollout of our website will happen gradually in the next few weeks. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. And if that's too hard to remember, just go to hbnpodcast.com. That's hbnpodcast.com. See you guys there. Professor Balzersky, we talked about sectional differences, the South, uh, the North, especially uh, around the Civil War period. And there are a lot of regional differences here in their acknowledgement recognition of Independence Day. So at what point does the 4th of July become nationally recognized, celebrated as our Day of Independence?
1: It's back to my hero, Ulysses S. Grant, <laughs> who, hero. It, it said, wanted to dine in Vicksburg to celebrate the 4th in 1863, and fittingly then as president, after he's elected in 1868 and takes office in 1869, one of Grant's first actions is to assign uh, the legislation that his Congress had passed, his Republican Congress had passed, making July 4th a federal holiday. So it was part, actually, if you want to look at it, of an effort by this new uh, Republican, radical Republican, we call them still Congress, to uh, reimagine and to transform the landscape of patriotism. And while July 4th had been regionally significant, it became nationally significant under the Grant administration, when in 1870, it became the first federal holiday. And it also, is beginning of a kind of modern bureaucracy where federal employees would, would start to get some time off and days off. This is as I said, labor, Labor Day gets us into a whole nother history of unionism and the gains that organized labor has made in this country. But in 1870 when Congress passed the bill, this federal holiday, it was an unpaid federal holiday. So it's interesting too that uh it unpaid was not federal initiative. holiday, that's on <laughs>
0: American
1: <laughs> You know so- it, when,
0: it really is. When uh, President Grant signed this bill to make uh, the 4th of July a national holiday, and I think you alluded to this in the previous segment, there was pushback from the South.
1: Well, that, right. not so much in that, I mean, it was, that see, the thing about Grant's first term is that the Republicans controlled House, Senate, and White House. They could do whatever they want. They did. This is the time when they're passing the 14th Amendment. They give citizenship rights to African-Americans and the 15th Amendment that same year. I mean, the 15th Amendment and the 4th of July were signed in the same year, 1870, as holidays and constitutional amendments, respectively.
0: Is there, is there any special meaning to the word independence and the Declaration of Independence in our Independence Day? That has morphed over the years. The Declaration of Independence is our independence from Britain, but has that term changed to different Americans uh, that we're wildly different than the population that lived in 1776?
1: I like to first start with some of the terms we use for these major events, right? The American Revolution, the Civil War. Uh, during the American Revolution, the notion that what was happening was really more of a civil war between, on the one hand, patriots, and on the other hand, loyalists.
0: A civil war, of this, oh, interesting.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's kind of been lost in this patriotic gloss, again, back to our earlier point, that all Americans somehow supported this independence. Knowing now, as we learned today, that that was not the case, we can really begin to see the American Revolution as a kind of civil war. Between those who wanted to be independent and those who wanted to be loyal to the crown. So, sim- similarly, the Civil War, the one which which was called the War of the Rebellion, by the way, for, for decades, and it wasn't until the twentieth century that the modern usage of the Civil War becomes operative and adopted, and and frankly now normalized.
0: Was called that the in, War of the Rebellion, even rebellion, even in official documents.
1: Well, if you actually look at the, the published records, such uh-huh. official records of the war of rebellion, which if any university library worth its salt has these massive green tones with gold lettering on it, that 's the phrase on it
0: oh interesting
1: and and so you know rebels and the rebellion those were the phrases used by of course union of course. forces and, and politicians in the north during the war, and it was never it was only rarely. In the time referred to as a civil war, but certainly not the civil war, right? Mm-hmm. Because it gets it gets back to like World War One, right? World War One's not called World War One until the Great war, war. Yeah, yeah. Right. And there's a similar process, but, but actually it, it gets us into reunification and this process of reunion that in the softening of the differences between North and South decades later, part of what is glossed over is the very name. And then there's a transformation of it from the very Aurora, name
0: of the declaration of
1: of the Civil War. Oh, I see. But in the so I think this is what I'm getting at in the process as the Civil War is glossed, as it's all about the old veterans coming back and shaking hands across Pickett's Charge, as they did year after year into the 20th century. It lays the groundwork for the July 4th holiday being uh, sort of a national patriotic display. And it's not coincidental that when when Franklin Roosevelt makes July 4th a paid federal holiday in 1938, that by that time, that generation, the Civil War generation, had entirely uh, passed away.
0: And and by, which which allowed him which, which gave him more leeway to make that a paid holiday. And do you think when he made it a paid holiday, there was an uptick in celebration and observance? Probably was.
1: Yeah, I, I think actually, again, what I've read is that the South, if you if you read oral histories or just sort of southern uh, southern literature and memoir, uh, people talk about how they don't they, when they were growing up in the twenty early twentieth century, they didn't celebrate the Fourth in most places. In the south and it really isn't until the era yeah it really isn't until the 30s and 40s and actually it gets to the patriotism of world war ii i mean world war ii actually did a lot to uh bring a new kind of national patriotism into display and this is of course the era where we get the reading now uh, in our schools of the pledge of allegiance eisenhower will add the phrase under god as he would but this is still uh, for the first time where Americans are beginning to see themselves fully as part of a nation. And again, it has a lot to do with the long, decades-long process of uh, what we still call reunion and reunification between North and South.
0: Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Balzerski as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Uh, Professor Balzarski... One of the things that I glean from our conversation is that the history of 4th of July in 1776 and the years after it is sort of surrounded with divisions and disagreements, yet we survived as a country. In fact, we've thrived. Are there lessons to be learned from this, from this history of division and disagreement for our present time?
1: Let's just go back to the end of World War II and to how the 4th of July is changing. Um, I read a speech by, well, it was really her column that Eleanor Roosevelt wrote every every day. It was called My Day, and she wrote it incredibly daily for her entire term as First Lady and for years what beyond. What a stamina. Uh, she, was, uh, she is something else. And, and the 1945 July 4th edition of My Day, uh, I was reading it over in preparation for today, and I, I was struck by how Eleanor Roosevelt tied it into uh, not so much American patriotism, but as this new and emerging concept of human rights, which ties into what she would end up doing as our first uh, ambassador to the United Nations and in producing the declaration of human rights that, that is still the landmark document of the United Nations to this day, that, that Eleanor Roosevelt was the key author and ultimately uh, chair of the committee that, that, that produced it a kind of echo in a way you might say to the Declaration of Independence. And so we look to uh, that, that moment of uh, establishing human rights as the new basis or principle on which uh, our all society not just the United States would be judged. And we, we come to recognize that July 4th can mean now more than simply a celebration of American independence. It can also mean Uh, in in the post-World War II context and really in the last 75 years of our history, the beginning of a new uh, set of human rights for the rest of the world.
0: What lessons can we glean for us Americans now with the divisions that we have going? I mean, is there anything from our divisions in the past that can inform our divisions now as we come to 4th of July?
1: I think it's important to recognize that American politics is in some ways um, neutral towards these holidays, that whoever the president, whichever the party in power, that these are cultural phenomena that transcend any one political leader or political moment. And the sort of signature style or use of a holiday uh, is what kind of makes it interesting to change from uh, from administration to administration back to the previous administration under President Trump, he also used July 4th to uh, proudly demonstrate America's military prowess, and he wanted a march Mm -hmm. uh, of our American military. He got it. That was the one time he got his uh, display of tanks uh, marching down the Capitol, and, of course, course, uh, a show of air superiority as well is very common today. And, and, you know, the, the flyovers of our fighter jets is a kind of... Common feature. I remember
0: uh, the Blue Angels growing up in San Francisco. Yeah, Blue
1: Angels, and that and that, that actually transcends July Fourth, but it's kind of part of our summer culture to really go out and see uh, these military fighting machines, and, and say this is this is one reason you can sort of feel safe and patriotic and all at once. Um, I, I think there's again different meanings, different moments. I think back to two thousand and two, the first July Fourth celebration after the attacks of 9-11, and it was a particularly patriotic moment as well for President Bush at that time. Um, in 2021, then, right, in a moment of political fracture with a new president, Joe Biden, his first July 4th celebration, really, my question will be, uh, how will, what will be the symbolic meaning that he will bring to the July 4th celebration? And what I would suggest to President Biden, because I know he's listening. <laughs> he is, of course. Um, Uh, is that he could take a page from a book that he knows so well, a book called American History. Uh, He was a history major, after all. And to pick a symbolic uh, sort of setting, to pick a historically significant place in which to deliver, which will undoubtedly be an important speech on July 4th that the president will give. Uh, And not to do so from the confines of the White House, which had been the tendency of the last administration or from some golf resort, but from a place that has significance (laughs) to America. And but the judges. president, well, I was going to say the president had gave two very important addresses during the campaign. We may remember them. One was at Warm Springs, Georgia, but the other was at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, where, again, he spoke to history. He spoke to the importance of what he believed his political mission and moment. So I would suggest that the president um, determine a place in which to do it. And, you know, the previous president, I should point out, did speak one year at Mount Rushmore. Uh, And so, again, that could be a potential place to reclaim another space that doesn't belong to any one president or term. Uh, So I'm not exactly sure where Joe Biden should talk, but I hope it's not tucked away in Delaware somewhere. I hope he travels and and gives us uh, a speech.
0: Professor Balzerski, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us, what's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at HistoryBehindNews.com. I love to hear from you, I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, the history podcast for our news.